your second best investment is always helping other people and helping them develop their careers. And, you know, it can be a pain in the neck. Welcome to the final instalment of What Matters, our podcast series inspired by the book of the same name. As you know, it's a book that's navigated one man's lifetime of business and investing. I'm your host, Adam Spencer, and as always, I'm joined by that man, the author of What Matters, chairman of the Sydney Swans, co-founder of Molus Australia, which now, of course, has been rebranded as MA Financial Group, Andrew Pridham. I've mentioned before on this podcast, I love the quotes that open the various chapters to what matters. Uh, the quotes as much as the people who give them. We spoke uh, recently of an American cheerleader who'd found her way into your book. And uh, when we start talking about personal success and personal career, managing yourself, uh, we start celebrate success but remain grounded as the chapter with the iconic Dan Seals, American country music and soft rock icon. Everybody said you'll make a big someday. I guess that we were only in your way. But someday I'm sure you're going to know the cost because for everything you win, there's something lost. Dan Seals, you warn of the karma bus, Andrew. What is the karma bus and why is it waiting for all of us? The karma bus, spelt with a K, yes, is idling on a corner near you. It's always sitting there waiting. There's a, a driver sitting in that driver's seat ready to mow you down. You don't need an Opal card for this one. It's going to find you. It's going to find you and you're not getting in the door. You're going under the wheels. And the Karma bus is relentless and it uh, is something that you need to be aware of because if you get ahead of yourself and you think that you're um, bulletproof and you start behaving like that, the karma bus is pulling out from the curb and it's going to run you down. And, and I often remind people of that and I often remind myself of that. And I don't want to overplay the, the, the metaphor, but you make it clear this is not some electric vehicle that hums along silently that you could never have seen coming. The karma bus is a big, noisy bus that approaches, you say, lights flashing, engine growling. So you're saying, what, what we're saying here is that after success, there's often the chance of failure. And you're saying people fail to perceive that reality and how clearly the big check moment could be coming? Yeah, one of the downsides of success for many people is that they get ahead of themselves and they start thinking that you know, because I'm successful at uh, chess, I'm a great chess player, therefore, ipso facto, I'm great at everything. And they have an opinion on everything and they know everything. And they treat people differently because they're so successful. And once you start doing that, the karma bus is going to run you down. So don't do that. It's important still to celebrate success, isn't it? There's some people who go the other way and, and, and never even take the moment to appreciate when they've done something of which they should be proud? I think so. You know, really, if you're a busy person and you're, you're busy being successful and doing things and going from one challenge to the next, it, it often is, a, again, a, a pitfall where you don't sort of stop and just look and say, you know what, I'm doing all right, this is okay, and I, you know, this didn't go well or I got that wrong, but I'm going okay and, and celebrate that. And that, that's a really healthy thing to do and, and I'm often guilty of not doing that and you sort of focus on the bad things. Um, but, you, you know, you should celebrate success but remain grounded because at the moment that you think that everything you touch is going to turn to gold, I can tell you that's when you're in big trouble. 
We spoke in another episode of this podcast about one of the traits of a leader, and you said that you'd like to think that you take your work very seriously and your responsibilities very seriously, but you don't take yourself too seriously. And that's one of the factors you say here is, is a helpful way to let you balance success without getting carried away and finding a pitfall later. Yeah, well, that's my favourite saying. It's actually in, in the book as the opening quote, um, that take what you do very seriously, but don't take yourself too seriously. And I, you know, from a personal perspective, I always remind myself and I remind others, at the end of the day, I'm an idiot from Adelaide. <laughs> and, you know, I've done many stupid things, I'm, you know, and you've got to remember where you came from and don't get full of yourself and think that, you know, I've, I've done this or done that or I've got this or that. At the end of the day, it's not important. What's important is is being a good person. And if you can master that, then you're successful. How big a role does luck play? I think luck plays a reasonable role. I don't know if in, if I've given it a percentage, 7.32%. Um, <laughs> uh, look, it plays a role and, and there's certainly an element of creating your own luck. The old quote from a golfer or whoever it was, mm. that the more you practice, the luckier you get. I think there's an element of truth in that. The more you put yourself out there, the more that you're actually giving yourself the opportunity to succeed, the better chance you give luck of going your way. But, you know, luck plays a big part in everything. I mean, um, if you're born in Africa, uh, you're black, poor, impoverished, you know, good luck becoming a successful investment banker. So luck being born into a good family, having good education, being healthy, all plays a big role big role. And as you go through anything you do in life, trying to be successful, you need a bit of luck. But it's amazing how some people are lucky and some people are unlucky. It just, I don't know, I can't define that, hmm. but it happens. I was at an event once where Richard Branson spoke and he took questions from the audience. And I asked him, you're tremendously successful and please don't take any offence in this question. But was, was there a moment early on where you were really lucky? And he told the story that he was put in touch with a young guy who was a talented musician, was trying to get his music out there, and they took a couple of approaches and it didn't work out, and Richard just said, look, well, why don't we do it ourselves? That was Mike Oldfield and Tubular Bells, which went on to be one of the biggest-selling handful of albums in the history of music at the time, all that prog rock, and, and that fell in Richard. That's where Virgin comes from. The Virgin Empire initially started as Richard Branson producing Mike Oldfield's music off an album that sold millions. Of, now, he's obviously got tremendous talent, Branson, to do all the things he's done since then, but something did at a critical early stage fall. It doesn't have to be like that, but a lot of the time for people who the truly iconic leaders of, of business and community, things do sometimes just early on. There's there's a, a pivotal lucky moment. Absolutely. You look at a lot of the, you know, the multi-billionaire tech entrepreneurs in the world, you know, they just happen to have met somebody at university, I mean, Steve Jobs met somebody who knew about computers and it happened in a garage, you know. Um, luck plays a part in everything you do in life you know, and that's that's just you know, something we have to accept but I don't think you can rely on luck to get you, hmm. get you anywhere. Let's talk about the media. In your business role, you're a high-profile figure. You would have to do a, a degree of media there but it's probably quite niche media but you're an AFL club chairman. And in certain parts of Australia, that's not just what they call media street, that's media city. The ability of AFL to consume news cycles in some of Australia's biggest cities is 
amazing to watch. What have you learned about interacting with the media that people could benefit from? Well, the media is very challenging and it's changed a lot in my, over my career. And it's become far more tabloid, far more headline-seeking, clickbait type. Mm. You know, I would say as an overall observation, uh, it'd be fair to say that the quality of journalism has... Um, Diluted? Somewhat. And it's challenging because anyone who's in a position of profile, and you'd know this, Adam, one of the things about the media that you learn very quickly, which people just don't understand unless you're somebody of interest to the media, is a lot of what you read, in fact, the majority of what you read is actually not true, <laughs> um, fake news. Mm. And the reason fake news, I think, had, had real uh, resonance with people is because it's true. A lot of what you read is not true. And even if it's not outright lies, it's opinion masquerading as fact or there's a lack of yeah. nuance or it's one side of the story where there's an equally valid Correct. other side. Or often it is just not true. <laughs> it's completely wrong. And people read and it always amazes me that, um, and, I, and again, I don't read a lot of the media now, funnily enough, because I, I, I'm intellectually honest enough with myself to say most things I read that are about me are wrong. So why would everything I read about other people be right? Mm. And it's probably not. So you've got to, you know, understand that. And I, I think with the, the media, I don't, you know, it's hard not to ignore it because it's real and people read it and people believe it. Um, and some of it is real. But I think that the, the key, what I've learned over the years is to develop relationships with journalists who you can trust. And I have many good relationships with journalists who I trust and I can tell things to and, and I'll be very honest with them and, and you can be honest with them and they will respect that and they won't necessarily write something. Sometimes they, you know, they, they, they will because it's their job. Um, but if you're honest with people and they understand that, and, and honest could be simply saying, I'm not going to tell you. They say, oh, you know, is this true? And I'll just say, I'm not going to tell you. And you don't say it's not true. I, I would never do that. A lot of people, I think, make that mistake and say, no, that's not true, knowing full well that in, you know, a week's time... It's going to come out It's going to come true. out that is true, and the journalist's going to say, well, I can cross you off as someone I can trust. So, you know, I, I believe in being honest with the, the journalists that you can trust in the media, and, and there's a lot you can't, and you just don't even bother. I wouldn't even return their calls because they're going to write whatever they write to get the clickbait, and, you know, that's something they have to sleep with them at night and uh, I don't know how they do some of them. But that's, you know, that's the, the challenging thing with the media. Just a quick stop during today's conversation because I wanted to remind you if you're enjoying what you're hearing and would like to learn more, you can head over to mafinancial.com slash whatmatters to access your copy of the What Matters ebook, a book that navigates a lifetime of business and investing. That website again, mafinancial.com slash what matters. Now, back to the conversation. Let's focus on going back to the beginning of a career and maybe getting to the point where one day the media does want to contact you and the like. Chapter 17 in What Matters is advice on planning a career. And as a former would-be lawyer who pivoted to studying for a pure maths PhD, then going into comedy to find his way to breakfast radio, I don't think I need any insights. It's a funny story, really. I don't, think, I don't think I need any insights on structuring and planning a career. But you make the point that, in fact, for the vast bulk of people, it's not a straight line. And even if it is a straight line, it was not the straight line that was planned back at the beginning. It's not a totally random process, is it? 
does it tend not to unfold as linearly as naive uni graduates might be expecting it to? I think in most instances, people's careers take twists and turns that you could never have predicted. And you know, David Koch, for example, who's on morning television, is a friend of mine, and I asked him, did you ever expect to be on morning television? He was a financial planner, I think. Mm. And he said, absolutely not, never never thought of it. It just happened by accident, luck. In fact, in Koshy's case, another, a TV show had started and, and the initial host got quite ill and needed to be replaced at fairly short notice and it fell in David's lap in 15, 20 years on. That's right. His reward is he gets up at four in the morning <laughs> every day. The career takes twists and turns and I think you make your own journey and you've got to grab opportunities when they arise. But just because you've studied you know, law at university or mathematics or whatever you've studied, medicine, doesn't mean that that's where you're going to end your career. One of my, a great friend of mine um, was an orthopaedic surgeon. He's, he's now an investment banker. Um, so he's, you know, he was an orthopaedic surgeon and he decided he wanted to help people. So he went into investment banking. <laughs> you were very honest about your own uh, career in the book. You said at a time when a lot of your peers were doing, and my daughter's going into year 11 now, and this is, you know, a lot of your peers were simply getting a graduation mark and going to the university course with the highest the highest entry mark they could get into for fearing they'd be wasting marks they'd earned if they didn't go in. You know, so I wanted to do law, but I, I got just enough to be a vet. Okay, I'll go and do vet science. But you, you had an experience in managing some apartments within your family and that and a couple of other things pushed you down the road to real estate. Walk us through that, that sort of early, you probably didn't even realise early career moments for you. No, I didn't. I mean, when, you, when you're at school, you don't have any clue. I mean, let's be honest. You've got no clue what you want to do. Some, I mean, some people t- tell you amazing stories that they've always wanted to do X and they've done it. Probably pretty rare. You know, when I was at school, I had no idea what I wanted to do. And pretty much everybody I went to school with was the same. If, if they could get X mark and that would get you into, she said, into vet science, that was the highest mark, they'd do it. And I probably thought the same way and I put my name down for law and I actually went, I was accepted into law and I, and I decided when I went to the orientation day and I saw all the other people I'd be studying with, I decided I didn't want to be a lawyer. <laughs> and that was, that was a great piece of insight because I would have hated it and I didn't do it and I went and did real estate because I was the highest mark in my real estate course by a long way and I sort of figured, well, I'd rather be the smartest person <laughs> in in the group rather than the dumbest person in the smart group sort of type mentality. And I, and I, but I was also interested in real estate. And I thought, well, I've spent a bit of time just because my family had some investments in in property. Um, that I thought that's something I I like. But the big you know the big moment for me was I did a huge amount of research on career. Huge. I did a, a three year study of. Um, financial future of what was going to happen in the right. industry. No, I uh, was what, reading... What, the, what the, form did that I was, I was re- A mate of mine had a copy of um, the Business Review Weekly, which I don't know if it's even published now. Um, it's probably owned by somebody, Fairfax or something, uh, BRW, and they had the rich lists. Yep. And this was back in 1983. Yeah. And I grabbed the, the rich list and because I only had one real ambition or two ambitions, three ambitions, professional footballer, mm-hmm. Uh, that was looking unlikely. Mm-hmm. Professional tennis player, a bit more likely, but unlikely. Yep. Uh, and to be rich. And unlikely to come from either of the first two sources. Unlikely. Unlikely. I was only inhibited by talent. Yep. Other than that, I had it pretty well nailed. 
I looked really good when I got in the gear. I'm sure. Uh, but I looked at the BRW and, I, and my very quickly because I, you know, I'm amazingly fast at you know, analysing statistics and numbers, and I saw that it looked like about eighty percent of Australia's richest people made their money out of property. Real estate used to be called property, and I thought, wow, I know about property. <laughs> I live in a house. I've been mowing the lawns at units that we own. I'll do that, and that so that was how I decided that that would be a good career. And, and you make no apologies in, in what matters. You know, the idea of accumulating wealth was one of the driving factors in your... But you make the point that that might be the driving factor for some people. It doesn't really matter what the driving factor is, but knowing what your driving factor is, is important. And when you give advice to youngsters, is part of the process really trying to find out what is it that drives them? I think so. You've got, you've got to understand, I mean, the things I always look at when I'm talking to someone about their career, and I, I do it you know, pretty often. I presume a lot of friends would bring their kids to you and say, can you give them half A lot, that? a lot. And it's something I, I always try and make time to do. You know, most most kids when they finish uni or finish school, they're more likely when I see them, they finish uni or they're at uni. They don't really know what they want to do. And I find when I speak to people about their, their career aspirations, most of what I would do is listen and, and ask questions rather than give them advice because... I don't know what people want to do. Everyone has different interests. And often they don't, they don't really know. But when you talk to somebody and ask them the right questions, you quickly find that, you know, they actually do have a bit of a view of what they want to do. And you just give them the confidence to, to pursue that. Um, or you might give them, give them the advice not to pursue it. For, and that could be because you don't think it's a, likely to be a great career choice. Um, there's no money in it, for example, and they want to make money. So, well, you know, I think in the book I use the example of a social worker. You know, if you want to do it, great. But if your ambition in life is to become rich, don't be a social worker. Mm. Right? Just it's pragmatic. It's just straightforward. Um, so you just give them advice as, as to outcomes. But ultimately, you've got to enjoy what you do. If you don't enjoy it, you won't succeed anyway. And a couple of the bits of advice you give up makes sense. Have a look at the industry you're going into. And we're at a time where there are some industries where a lot of the experts are saying that's a shrinking field. You know, really think before you go there about what career progression might mean. When you look at someone's resume, if they've hopped between a lot of jobs early on, that's a bit of a red flag for you and makes you wonder if that person's really cut out. But a couple of things you mentioned that, that don't necessarily uh, pop front of mind, so I'd love to delve into a little bit. Your mentor or boss is as important or more important than the name of the company you start out at. Now, a lot of people, when they're going out into professional services, look at their industry and know there's a big four or a big seven, or you've got to get into one of these or a sandstone. And I get the impression that the reputation and strength of name is still very strong. You're saying the position of the mentor is just as or even more important? I think it's more important. You see, I hear so many stories of people who go and work at the big name tech companies, you know, the Fang stocks, for example, because they want that name on their CV. They want to say, I worked at, at Google or Facebook or wherever, Apple. Um, and they might not necessarily be great places to work. They might not be the great job for them. They might be great to work at, but they might not. And what I would say to anyone is, particularly if it's a very large company you work for, just because it has a great brand, or you really like the product that they they have or products they have, services they provide, doesn't mean it's going to be a great place for you to learn because you don't learn by having a brand above your head or working at it. That doesn't teach you. What teaches you 
everything about whatever career you're in is the people that you work with and work for. And you know, I, I always encourage people that if if you're working for directly for somebody who's not a good person, who's a bit dodgy, cuts corners, lazy, whatever it is, if you work for them long enough, you'll become just like them. And I've seen that over. It's mm. a pattern I've seen over and over and over. And having a mentor who gives sets a good example and actually teaches you how to how to do things properly and well and be a good person, more often than not, you'll become like that person because they'll be they'll be your mentor and, and you'll follow their lead. So my advice is find somebody who you can you can work for who'll teach you and be a great uh, mentor, and then you you're on the road to success. And you go to one of the great catch twenty twos that people find you know. Wanting to go for a job that's demanding you have experience, where you can't, you don't have a job. You want to get a job to get it. You only get experience from the process of being there. And you make a great point. Do not sit at your desk, earphones in, listening to music. Trust me, you'll not learn anything about your business or your chosen industry listening to Ed Sheeran. Yeah. And that's no disrespect to Ed Sheeran. Played at an AFL Grand Final. Unbelievable. What's the point you're making there? The point is that if you go to university, you learn a whole lot of stuff. And the first thing anyone will tell you that's been to university and gets a job is, you know what, 99% of what I learned is irrelevant. I learned more in the first three months, dot, dot, dot. Correct. And the reason for that is, is what university is teaching you is, is how to learn. And it's, it's giving you sort of base level information to, to put in your head. But when you, when you actually get into the workforce, you actually learn the specific skills um, that you need to have to be successful. And that, that might be technical skills, but it's also interpersonal skills, it's work ethic and you need to focus on on learning in your career you start early in your career learn 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 you don't learn if you've got earphones in listening to Ed Sheeran because you're not hearing what's going on you're not hearing your idiot boss on the phone trying to you know calm a client down who you've disappointed or trying to win business you're not hearing what's going on around you and, and absorbing it and understanding how workforce works and that's one of the reasons for example in 2020, working from home, you know, with COVID-19, I'm a strong believer that people will come back to the office and that they should come back to the office because one of the things you can't teach on Zoom, uh, if Zoom still exists in five years' time when you're listening to this podcast, what you can't learn are all the things that happen in the hallway. Mm. It's, you know, that the, the boss has done this or says this or, gee, that was interesting. Listen, learn, absorb. And if, you, if you're doing that, you'll develop much quicker. And the other thing that's challenged in that you know, divested working model is the human interaction of mentoring. And if you get to a point in your career where you're starting to inspire others, you make the point that you know, whilst most people realise the most important investment in your career is yourself, the second most is those around you, those you're working with or those you're in charge of. Why do you believe that mentoring is, is so important? You say that all successful people have had a mentor or mentors during their career. Yeah. I think your second best investment is always helping other people and helping them develop their careers. And it, you know, it can be a pain in the neck. It takes time. Someone says, you know, can you have a coffee with me? Can you have a coffee with my daughter? Talk about her career. You know, I haven't got a lot of time. So you think, well, why is that important? Because that person's, you know, you could easily say irrelevant to me, mm. you know. But I think it's incredibly important. For, for a number of reasons, some just selfish, commercially savvy, some just being a good person. And, one, and the, good, the good person aspect to it is 
you know, help the next person in line. Don't be selfish if you've had success or you've got knowledge. Actually help other people get there. You know, I think that's what a decent person does. So there's that element to it. In the same way that there were great mentors in your early Yeah, I would have got, I, I, you know, I'd be, I don't know what I'd be doing. I certainly wouldn't be playing football. But if I didn't have great mentors, you know, people who've taught me and, and I learned an enormous amount from a number of people. Um, I think we've established no matter what happens in your life, you wouldn't have been playing football. That seems to be a recurrent theme. <laughs> there's always time, there's always a chance, as they say. But the other aspect to it is by helping people and actually spending time that you don't need to do and is that you create what you create is a network of people who will advocate for you. Mm-hmm. People who they know, people aren't stupid, they know that you've helped them just by spending time with them or giving them an opportunity, letting them come and do work experience, whatever. You didn't have to do that. And they know that. And unless they're pretty selfish, most people get it. And every time you do that, you create a bit of goodwill and somebody who'll then throughout their career and their life will say, you know what, that person's a good person. They help me. The organisation they work for is a good organisation. They help me. And they go and do other things. They can become clients. They might not. They might become competitors. But the, the karma bus can actually work in your favour. And you make an interesting point here. This had not dawned on me. that you, your Most formal mentoring programs you've witnessed, you don't think work out, that the structure and all that. But you, you said sometimes as a more senior person in an organisation, spending time one-on-one with more junior people. I can understand your argument that it gives you a bit of an energy kick and, and room, but you actually might get some critical insights into how the organisation's operating through the honesty and even naivety of more junior people in the organisation sharing their feelings about what it's like at the coalface that you're probably a couple of steps removed from some of the time. It's something I've discovered by accident. I never set out to do it, but because I do enjoy spending time with and particularly younger people in their careers, and or it could be you know, even you know within a football context, the players, for example, by developing genuine, authentic relationships with people where you actually are interested in what they're doing and trying to help them, the thing I discovered is it helps you enormously because you get a different perspective on things. If you're the chief executive of you know, a large company, for example, you know typically you're talking to senior business people you're talking to senior executives within your organisation, the board. You don't really know what it's like being a graduate in the organisation. You don't know what issues they have if culturally things are going off off the rails or um, there are people doing bad things or whatever. But by being aware and actually spending time with people throughout the organisation, often the most junior, you learn a lot. You know, they'll tell you eventually, you know, they'll be nervous. They won't tell you straight out, but eventually... If they know you're authentic and you're not there trying to, you know, dob on somebody, tell me, you know, dob on someone so I can fire them. Rat them out, yeah. They actually understand that, you know, you're a real person and, you know, when you leave the office, you actually go and do real things, you know, watch TV, play sport, have kids, whatever, that they can tell you stuff and they do tell you stuff. Even inadvertently they'll tell you. And you learn so much. You say, wow, I didn't know that. We should do that. And, And the academy... The Mollus Academy um, is part of that learning. Is it's easy to forget that people in the early in their careers, they're hungry to learn. They want mm. they want access to the most senior people. You know, they get a real kick if they're in a meeting and the CEO's in the meeting. And you, if you're the CEO, you, you just think, oh, whatever. But for them, it's really important. You know, they probably go home and say to their friends, family, oh, I had a meeting and the CEO was in it. You talk in the book about it at the Swans. 
few years ago, early on in a young player's career, almost as soon as they walked through the door, someone like Adam Goods would make it a point to go up and say hi and introduce himself. And, and I know you're a tremendous fan of Adam as a player and a yeah. person, but imagine what it's like for some 19-year-old, 18-year-old kid who's just been drafted from the middle of nowhere, nervous as all get out walking into a footy club, to have one of the great players in the modern game come and introduce himself and ask if you want to go and have a coffee. Yeah, hugely impactful. And you can take it for granted when you operate, live, work in an environment where you're around these people all the time, that um, you know, the fact that you know Lance Franklin well or you know, you know Plugger, who's uh, my farm manager, for example, <laughs> you know, the players today who are playing who are AFL footballers, they say to me, you know Plugger? And you go, yeah, yeah he's mowing my lawn right now. <laughs> you know, oh, could I meet him? Mm. Yep. And the impact that has on people is enormous and it's easy to forget it. You say that, in fact, if you look at an organisation and judge how much that organisation is investing in encouraging its people and bringing on leadership skills and mentoring, that's a good guide as to how healthily that organisation is tracking along? Absolutely. I think if you work at an organisation where they don't care about developing their people, if it's just numbers and tuning people through, you know, it's not a great environment to be in. Particularly early in your career, it's about learning. You've got to learn, you've got to develop. And, you know, it's very important that, you know, as a business, we're very focused on it in our business, that we actually do develop people and we care about them and we train them. And it's a win-win. Like, it's a no-brainer. Because if you can develop people faster, they're more motivated, they become more valuable because they work hard and they can do a better job. And that's that's incredibly important. And I, I genuinely believe that one of the the most important things I can do for the balance of my career is to help teach younger people and get them to be better, quicker. Uh, it's you know, a no-brainer. I hope you're enjoying the What Matters podcast as much as we're enjoying bringing it to you. If you've listened across the series, you've picked up many great tips on how to be successful as a leader, as a business mind, and as a person. Now, in episode seven, entitled Winning Habits and a Few Tricks of the Trade, former Telstra Businesswoman of the Year, Rhonda Brighton-Hall told us what she really thought about office politics and gossip. I think it comes from two sources. So one is you do have people who create gossip, like they're just those people. And often when we talk about them, whether it be harassment or something crazy like that, you talk about it as an event and people try to solve it as an event, but actually it's a pattern of behaviour. That person will create that same gossip and rubbish that wastes everyone's time over and over and over and over. So you do have to look at it back to your point of looking at patterns. The second part that it comes from is people who don't have a lot of power. They'll sometimes try to grab information so that they can be the person who knows stuff that's going on. And people do gravitate to talk to them, but not for interesting reasons and not for reasons that will be good for their career or good for the business or good for the other people. They're just because they're like an island of crappy conversation in the middle of a good conversation that you should be having. That's episode seven of What Matters, Winning Habits and a Few Tricks of the Trade with Rhonda Brighton-Hall. Make sure you check it out. Now, back to our conversation. As someone moves through their career into more senior positions and you start becoming involved in bigger uh, decision-making, have more responsibility, et cetera, you address in Chapter 19 paranoia that uh, a degree of paranoia does start to set. And I should preface this by saying people are listening to this podcast now. That is just, that is true, Andrew. You have to accept that. Who? You talk about a healthy dose of paranoia guarding against complacency. You have to be careful it doesn't go too far. But let's talk about the concept of a healthy dose of paranoia first. I think to be successful at anything, you have to have a healthy level of paranoia because 
it keeps you on edge, it keeps you sharp. And if you're not worried about anything, you're not worried about competitors, you're not worried about things that go wrong, it's just, oh, you know, whatever, then I don't think you care enough. And if you care, uh, you're going to worry about things. And I, like I worry about everything. I, I could worry for Australia. I'd be a podium. <laughs> um, and you've got to have that. And, and many of the most successful business people I've dealt with or people in sport, um, you know, people who are billionaires, you'd think they'd have nothing to worry about. And they worry like you wouldn't believe. They worry about everything. And that's how they became successful because they worry and they worry and they worry and they deal with things. And the more successful you are, the more you worry, funnily enough, because you've got more things to worry about. And I think it's a very important trait to have. It's a good trait to have, level of paranoia, until it goes too far. Mm. And you don't mince your words. You're talking about you know things can escalate into full-blown mental illness at some stage. We'll get to that, but first, because it's, it's a very subtle theme you're exploring here. It's important to have a healthy dose of paranoia, but you say typically great leaders and business builders are optimists. So optimists who are still open to worrying a lot, and I don't know any successful person whose emotions are not like a roller coaster. So base position optimistic, but still experiencing roller coasters of emotions and often worrying. That's a, that's a subtle and very sort of complex package you're presenting there. Can we unpack that a bit? It is complex, probably too complex to explain. Um, I'm a bit paranoid about talking about this. Now, a friend of mine says to me often, he said, he thinks that I'm in, the, me personally, I'm in the business of risk management, that you know, I'm someone that manages risk. And it's probably true. It's an, interesting, it's an interesting way to describe what I do. And if you're going to manage risk in any business, anything you do, you're dealing with all sorts of risks, multiple risks. You worry about things. So you worry, what could this risk, what could this, what could happen, what could go wrong? And you're constantly worrying about it. And being vigilant about things that can go wrong is very important and, and putting them in perspective is very important. But as a leader, if you are so worried about things that you're paralysed, that you can't do anything because you always think this could go wrong, that could go wrong, therefore we shouldn't try that, we shouldn't try this, then you're not a leader. You can't you can't build anything. You'd be just sitting there doing nothing. And it'd be very easy to do that. And I think a lot of people in life probably do do that. You know, they, they worry, they worry, they, they, they're paralysed, they can't do anything. The only thing you know, they probably do during the day is head off to Centrelink to get their dole check. But if you're going to be successful, you have to be optimistic and say, yeah, these are the risks. This could go wrong. That could be nasty. We'll deal with that if, when it happens. We won't deal with it now because it hasn't happened. We'll worry about it, but we'll deal with it if it happens. But we're going to do this and we're going to go and make this happen. And that's that's what you need to do. But if you're not worrying about the risks, I think you're reckless and you end up those sorts of people who have no no worries at all. Mm. I think they, they're often the ones that come unstuck. When the paranoia goes from being healthy and guarding against complacency to being you know, a handbrake on you, or in the worst case manifests itself in a degree of you know, mental illness or instability, what what are the signs? I mean, you must have seen it in, in business and in sport, and it's a good thing in some ways in sport we do more openly address now. Players can put their hand up and go, I need a couple of weeks off. I'm mentally just not in a spot to play at the moment. In the old days, they would have faked an injury or just yeah. got an issue, get a tissue, go on with it. So in some ways, it's positive we acknowledge the issue. But what are some of the signs for individuals? And in saying this, we're not qualified professionals giving out advice, but in your experience, what sort yeah, of... we'll give it a go. <laughs> what sort of... What well, are telltale signs? It's... it's Firstly, it's incredibly common, and 
certainly within professional footballers, incredibly common. Mm. And in business, it's incredibly common but less talked about, okay. more swept under the, under the carpet. And there's actually a, I think it's a, a, a proper diagnosable, um, you can Google it, which is high performance anxiety. Mm-hmm. I think it's called something of that, of that nature. And people who are high performers, very successful, have often, I think, a higher degree of mental illness, anxiety, depression mm. than the general population. And one of the, I think there's a number of reasons for it. One is I think they're predisposed by nature. It's almost uh, follows that if you're driven to be successful, that's your personality type. So you probably you have a, a predisposition to some sort of anxiety, depression, because you you have such set high standards for yourself. You're really More trouble processing, failure and the like. You want to succeed. And the other thing with success comes a lot of uh, review. You know, if you're a person of profile, if you're successful, so people see what you're doing, they analyse it, they talk about it, that can lead to a lot of issues. And I see it in people in business very, very often um, that they get to a point where they have such anxiety that it leads to depression. They almost can't get out of bed in the morning. They only see the downside in everything. Uh, The world's about to end. And when you see that, that's when it's time to say to somebody, listen, we, we probably should have a chat about this and you might want to do something about it. And, and, and I do that frequently with clients and friends. You know, I refer them to people. I, I, actually, I could have a medical degree. I could be a psychologist. But it's important to reach out to people. And that's something I've actually learned from sport. Mm-hmm. More, more than in business, you don't really worry about it. But I've learned through my role in professional sport that where it's, it's more acceptable to talk about it and mm. deal with it. You do someone a, a great disservice just to go, you'll be right. You'll be right, mate. Yeah. Toughen up. Yeah. You know, because sometimes they won't be. Um, and you need to help them. And yeah, people who don't seek help, you know, can be tragic end. One final point you make, which is really interesting about how someone's perspectives can, can impact on the way they feel. You point to the well-known Olympic medal paradox that, Obviously, winning a gold medal in the Olympics is fantastic, but a lot of people are a lot happier winning bronze yeah. than winning silver. Now, there's no reason that silver is clearly a higher performance than bronze. Yeah. But if you're silver, looking at the person at gold going, I was 0.2 of a second away from that, whereas bronze will look at the person going forth going, I got a medal. I got a medal. The benchmarks you set for yourself and the relativities you perceive if you want, you'll always find someone else in your business or broader industry or community at large who's doing better than you, who you can beat yourself up over, why aren't I getting that? That's not fair. I'm not good enough. If you take a moment to be mindful and look at where you're at and, and take pride in your own success, that can, can that really be a big thing in framing the way where people's minds are at? 100%. Everything that happens in our lives happens in our brain. Hmm. It's, it's virtual reality other than that. It's all happening in our brain. We've Conjure up scenarios, risks, this, if that, what, what about this, could have been, should have been. Um, and the, the Olympic medal studies are, are fascinating, that the, the unhappiest person at an Olympic um, medal ceremony is the silver medalist. And the bronze medalist is going, fantastic. And, and the reason is their perception in their brain is, if I'd have done a bit worse, I would have got nothing. I wouldn't be on the podium. Whereas the silver medalist, medal all I can think about life. is, if I just did a bit better, I would have won gold. You know, how did I not do it? And, you know, life's like that and businesses like that and investing's like that. Something I always joke about, and I do this, all my friends do this. 
you might own shares in a company and you sell some of those shares. You sell half of the shares because you're worried. Keep half. And then the share price keeps going up and you're filthy. You want it to go down. And you, <laughs> it's so illogical. <laughs> I want to be worth less money. <laughs> but because you want affirmation that that decision to sell was a good one, you want the stock price to go down even though you lose money. And that's in your head. And if you can control that, it's really powerful. And, I, and I'll let you know if I ever work out how to do it. <laughs> <laughs> because we started this conversation by saying, don't get, you know, remain grounded. Don't get too far ahead of yourself. Watch out for the karma bus. But do celebrate success. Take a moment to be mindful of when things are going well and be aware of the upsides of what you've achieved. Yep. Take a deep breath once in a while. Have perspective and look at what you've achieved, where you are in life, the fact that you're if you're sitting in Australia, for example, you know how lucky you are just being in Australia. Have perspective on life, and you know smell the roses occasionally. You can be driven. You can you can you know worry about things, but also think about what you've done and it's good and what's good in your life. And if you can do that often enough, and I I work hard to do that. I'm not great at it, but I work hard at it. It really does, I think, make you perform better ultimately because you feel better in yourself. And and the risk is that you don't do that and you slide down the anxiety, depression trap, or you go the other way and you become so full of yourself that no one wants to deal with you, you know, you know everything about everything and everyone just thinks, well, that person's lost it. You know, they, they don't, they're not grounded and you've got to remain grounded and uh, reminding yourself that, Adam, you're an idiot that went to Riverview uh, is important. Because you'll, you'll remain grounded. With you, it's very easy, obviously. Yeah, exactly. With me, it's much more difficult. No, no, exactly. And I'd be good enough to not even point out that you got the school wrong because that sort of stuff doesn't worry me. Where did you go to school? It's an Aloysius College. The, 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 I knew it was the, Catholic. The poor cousin, the poor cousin of review. Okay, so we should now take a deep breath, reflect on the fact that we've had a fascinating conversation about managing yourself. You should go and smell some roses, but keep an ear out for the karma bus. Going past now. Well, thank you so much for joining us for the What Matters podcast. I really hope you've enjoyed listening as much as Andrew and I have enjoyed navigating his life in business and investing. If you haven't done so already, make sure you head over to mafinancial.com slash whatmatters to download your copy of the book. Thanks for listening.